Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the, the man said, this, is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The grass withers and the flower fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful God in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, your word that guides us, your word that leads us, your word that instructs us in all ways of godliness. For that your spirit be upon us, your people, and you continue to shape and form us. We follow your ways, that we walk in righteousness as you do. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, um, you know as a family, uh, one of the TV shows that we like to watch is called Alone. And maybe you've seen this or maybe you've heard of it, but in this show, I think every season varies a little bit, but 10 contestants get dropped off in the wilderness in random, in different parts around a, a giant lake, and they just get to take a handful of items with them. And the goal is to survive, you know, for 100 days all alone in the wilderness. So all you have to do to win is to survive being alone in the wilderness. And you build your own shelter, and it's always fun to see what kind of shelter are they going to, uh, you know, build. And uh, you know, our favorite was the rock house that got built a season ago. And they have to start hunting and fishing and. Um, and you know, so they have to do all these things, uh, and the only thing they really have with them as a friend is the camera equipment that they have, and they have to you know, record everything that they're doing, otherwise there wouldn't be a TV show to watch what they're doing. And so, uh, you know, and we, you know, as the season begins, everyone in our family kind of pick who our favorite is. Who's going to win this season? Who do we think that can uh, accomplish this task? And, you know, it's funny. As the days go by, it usually takes about a week or so. Um, you know, everyone starts with really high hopes, but about a, a weekend, uh, everyone starts to get really weepy and really alone, and they start to get a little crazy because they're not with any people. And uh, they start talking to trees and rocks, and they start talking to the squirrels, and it gets a little weird um, because, you know, those things can't talk back to you. And, uh, and it's kind of interesting because it's in this show that's called Alone that, that we're reminded that, that the thing that makes it so hard to win is that you're not made to be alone. You're not made to be alone like that in the wilderness. You weren't made for loneliness. You were made to be with other people. You were made for relationship with, you were made needing others. And this is something missing that when we are alone, there's something incomplete about us. And this is fundamental to what it means to be 
human. Uh, and this isn't just a, a post-fall problem for us. But we find this story here at the end of Genesis 2, before the fall happens, uh, this problem innate within humanity that we are not uh, meant to be alone. In fact, the first thing that's called not good here is Adam's aloneness. It's not good. And so what's God's answer to this problem of us being alone? Well, it isn't just more people. He didn't just create more people. What does he do? He, he creates a woman and he creates this institution that we call marriage. You know, man is not meant to be alone, but he is meant to have a wife and vice versa. And some, you know, he, he, he needs someone that's made of the same stuff that he is. And uh, this is what brings the creation of humanity to a close here in this chapter. And this is what shows us the purpose of what marriage is for. And as we talk about marriage this morning, you know, we're talking about a very tender subject. Because anyone uh, here who is married knows that you can be married and you can still be alone. You can be married and still experience loneliness. And there might be people here who have been divorced and maybe remarried or not. And you feel that the guilt of that and those who here are single and, and who deeply desire to be married, but you're not. And so as we dive into marriage and as we dive into the meaning of marriage, uh, I think one of the things we're going to see is something bigger happening and what marriage is meant to point us towards. Because marriage isn't an end, but it's a means to show us something bigger. It is seeing uh, that something bigger that helps us actually grow in the marriages that we have. And, and so um, as, as we do focus on marriage this morning, if you're here and you don't happen to be married, I encourage you to stick with me. Because as we find this, that by the end, we're going we're gonna to see a, a picture that's bigger than marriage happening here. Uh, and you know, what we find is that this topic of marriage is actually for all of us, regardless of our status in the moment. At the very least, it'll give you a place to encourage friends of yours that are married around you. So I think there's three really important things I want to point out about marriage that we see happening here at this first wedding um, at the end of uh, Genesis 2. And these three things are this, that marriage gives us an opposite companion. Uh, the secondly, that marriage gives us intimacy and third, that marriage gives us a covenant promise. So first, marriage gives us an opposite companion. Uh, and so when you look at this text, the first thing that, that, that stands out is that there's, there's two problems here. The first one shows up at the beginning here, verse 18. God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So it's not good that man should be alone. This is the, the first problem. So God recognizes the first ungood thing, the first problematic thing, man is alone. And for any wife who's ever left her husband home for a weekend, you know that this is true, that it's not good for man to be alone. You come home, there's pizza boxes everywhere, whatever it is. It's not good for man to be alone. Problem number one. Uh, the second problem we, we find here is, you know, throughout this section, verse 18 and 19, he starts to looking for this, uh, for someone to help him and all the other animals that are created. And then we see this in verse 20, that the man gives name to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. There's no helper fit for him. So the, the problem of being alone couldn't be solved by things that were already created. Right? Lions and bears and horses or whatever that was running around. Um, they weren't fit companions for him. He needed something that was like him, but not the same as him. He needed a helper, it says here. He needs someone, someone that's opposite of him, but made of the same stuff. And it's... Uh, it's often this verse in verse 20 that, that Adam needs a helper. 
And in reference to Adam's need of a helper, that can be one of the more kind of controversial parts of how uh, the Bible begins to speak about gender roles and marriage and male and female. And depending on how you view the word helper, uh, you may think that Adam needs a helper um, like Santa Claus needs elves. And so we kind of inject our own meaning of what does it mean to be a helper into this passage. And uh, we tend to assume that the word is a derogatory term. Uh, some use it as a license to put uh, women down and others use it as a proof to say, well, listen, the Bible is this archaic book. It has nothing to tell us about men and women. So the question to ask is, well, what does the word helper mean? Well, biblically, the word helper is most often a reference to God himself. In fact, we actually just sing that, sing that in Psalm 121, it's, which says, where does my help come from? My help comes from the God who made the heavens and the earth. So God is the main helper of scripture. So to be called the helper of Adam does not mean unequal. In fact, you know, we see, if we see this when the woman is taken from the man's side, right? Side by side, they're equal in value and worth. Further, the, the root word for, for helper means to save from danger. So Adam needs a helper. He needs a companion to save him from himself, to save him from his loneliness. And this is what we see God doing here in verse, sorry, in verse 21. So the, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. So here, you know, the Hebrew text literally says that God would make a helper for him that is his opposite to him. So man's helper would be a counterpart for him. It's like puzzle pieces that, that fit together perfectly. She would provide what he lacked and vice versa, and they were both the same and different. That's what marriage does. Marriage gives us an opposite companion. And you know, one of the things that is opposite about us is that we have two different natural instincts. You know, as God made the world by forming and filling and called humanity into, into that work of forming and filling, man's first instinct is to form, and woman's first instinct is to fill. And these aren't exclusively male or female things, but they are our first instincts. So men form by building, creating, uh, uh, creating structures. And this is often how men judge themselves too. What have I made? What have I conquered? What have I had dominion over? And you know, woman's first instinct is in filling, is found in relationship. You know, a, woman, uh, a woman's instinct is in attachment. And one of the ways you, times you see this most is, uh, you know, when, is when a woman starts to nest, if they buy a new home or you start having a baby. You know, and this opposite instinct is actually something we need from each other. It isn't that a woman doesn't have an instinct to build. It isn't that her, it is just that her first instinct is attachment. It isn't that men don't care about relationships or have capacity to be good at them. You should be good at them. Um, it just takes more work. It's not typically your gifting. It isn't what you think of first. And we need each other because of this, because we're opposites. And together we make this whole. It's the, the wife who's the one that usually notices in a relationship, hey, uh, we need to talk. I feel distant. We need time to connect. You know, men, you heard your wives tell you this. I know it. Um, our wives notice things about people that men just do not see. Um, and it's the husband who builds the this, this safety of a home that, where these conversations can actually happen. It's the husband who, who builds, the, the, builds these things and working together to form and to fill in a, in a very similar way that the triune God 
works, right? There's unity in its diversity. Humans were made to, to find companionship with each other, with the opposite, man and woman. There's supposed to be unity in this diversity that you experience uh, in marriage. One of the ways that Jen and I have experienced this in our life is that we've moved a lot uh, in our years of marriage. And, you know, we moved for good reasons. Um, and don't worry, we're not moving Yakima. Unless you fire me, then I'll probably move. But uh, well, we moved a lot uh, in, our, in our years of marriage. And, you know, those moves tend to be harder on Jen than they are on me. Why? Because when we move somewhere, it's a new opportunity for me. Like I got this new domain to conquer, to have dominion over, to, to build, and it's exciting. But for her, it means a break in relationships. And it, it takes years to build relationships in new places. And it means dis, disattachment before you can reattach. And even as a new church, maybe you felt this in, in, in your family. As you come to our church, it's always a little easy, easier for a man than a woman in this because women feel their relationships and their lack of relationships in their core. Uh, and this is where we need each other in this. I need my wife to say, hey, you need to slow down, Craig. Build, that's great, and I'm for you, and I will help you build, but maybe you need to build slower. And she needs me to lead her into uncomfortable places, to say, listen, we need to do this, even though it's uncomfortable at this time. We actually have to move. There's nothing I can do about that, but, but God will be with us in our move. So we need each other in this, to balance each other. And marriage gives us this opposite companionship. The, the tension in this uh, is is that our opposite companionship, the fact that we are opposite, tends to be the very source of our problems, doesn't it? Uh, because it means that we're different. And uh, you're not just hanging out with your buddies, your pals. And our different instincts for forming and filling can seem at odds. Uh, sometimes our diversity doesn't lead to unity. Sometimes it leads to the opposite, right? And, you know, what if I don't want to follow my husband? Or what if I don't want to slow down and love my wife? And what we find here is that marriage gives us more than just this, hey, you opposite people, figure it out. Uh, it gives us a, a place for that to happen because it gives us a place of intimacy. As it gives us a place of intimacy, it gives us a place to grow in this, a place to grow in trust, which is the second thing we see here is that marriage gives us intimacy. Look with me here back at verse 23 where the man's first words, first words spoken in the Bible say this, this is that last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Here we get you know, the first words of, of humanity that are ever spoken. And it's this love poem. He loves Eve. He is at last not alone, right? And think about it. Adam, to this point, all he has ever known in life is alone. He has never known companionship like this. And now... He has a wife. He has a companion. He's overjoyed with excitement. He blurts out the first poetry ever, ever written down by man. And it leads to something that is hard to imagine for us, I think. It's verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and not ashamed. Now, this is the ultimate picture of what God intends in marriage. And what's interesting is that the word, uh, the word naked, more often than not in the Bible, actually represents someone's guilt. In fact, the first place we see this is just in the next chapter where you find them naked and what? Full of shame, right? covering themselves because of, of their shame. And uh, so nakedness is what often brings shame as a reminder to, our, to what we've done, it's a reminder of guilt, but not here. 
Here we see naked and and unashamed, and this is what marriage gives you, a place to be naked where you don't have to cover up. And obviously naked is not just a lack of clothing, although that is part of it. Um, But more deeply, it speaks of their relationship. There's nothing hidden and nothing hiding. Uh, They share all that they are together, holding nothing back. There's, There's no shame, nothing to be embarrassed about, nothing to hide from. And marriage is a place that's meant to give us this, this deep intimacy where our opposites, uh, companionship isn't a detraction, but it's, it's an attraction, a place where we can be naked and unashamed, where our opposite instincts aren't a liability, but where they complement perfectly in a place of trust. As one friend puts it, you know, marriage gives us a naked friend, a companion to know and be known by. And when you think about it, even on this side of the fall, Marriage is the one relationship where you are more naked there than any other part of your life. Your your spouse sees the good, the bad, and the ugly about you. You may wear clothes around others, right? The people you're around during the day aren't going to see all your sins, all your struggles. uh, But at home, it comes off. They can't help it, right? The, The rough edges show. At home, you can't as easily hide because you have full access to each other's lives. Your spouse knows your strengths and weaknesses better than you do yourself. You know, if you want to test me on that, ask your spouse sometime, hey, what is my greatest weakness? Uh, and just be ready for the answer. Um, but they see you. And this is the thing that can cause shame for us, though. Because it's hard to be seen. It's hard to trust being seen. We're afraid, what if I, what if I actually tell that person everything about me and they reject me? What if they don't like seeing all my all of who I am and my struggles. And uh, this is what creates shame for us. And so this picture of marriage here is almost unimaginable for us. Of course, you read it and you're like, of course, I want that. How amazing would that be to be in that kind of relationship? But it is, it is unimaginable. We see the good in it. We long for it. But we have varying degrees of success in this and we still hold back. And so a, a question for us in this is this. So how are we to live in this kind of opposite companionship, fully naked and unashamed, when we still struggle with our nakedness and our shame, how do we come out of that? How can this possibly work for us to, to expose ourselves in front of our spouses? Well, the, the only, there's only one thing that can make this work, and this is what we find thirdly, and it's this, that marriage gives us a covenant promise. Marriage gives us a covenant promise. You know, at its core, marriage is a promise that says, I will never leave you. It is a binding covenant with each other that says, come what may, I'm here. And actually, this is what we find echoed in, in this poem that, uh, that Adam says. He says, this is, alas, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You know, there are several things happening here in this language. For one, this language points us to the beginning of this covenant promise. And this relationship between Adam and Eve, when he says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, he's speaking of a, of a covenantal commitment to her. It speaks of a common loyalty. And you, you see this other place in the Bible. For one is when northern tribes visited David in 2 Samuel 5, and they were going to make a covenant with him. And they said this, that we are, we are your bone and your flesh. We are loyal to you. Uh, Adam is covenanting with her. Also in the Bible, you know, flesh is one of the references to, to our weakness. 
which makes sense, right? When your flesh is exposed, it's, you know, it's all squishy and, and, you know, it can get diseased and stuff. And, you know, bones, what are they? They're hard, they're strong, they last. That's why you can dig up bones and, uh, from thousands of years before and the bones are still there, but the flesh is gone. And in a way, you know, our marriage vows actually mimic these first vows, right? In weakness and in strength for richer, poor, in sickness and in health, in your, in your weakest place and in your strongest place, I will never leave you. So marriage is this covenant promise that says, I won't leave your side. And we see this promise actually further here in verse 24 when we see, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And this is kind of setting up this ongoing institution that is the marriage that gets passed on from generation to generation, right? This, this word hold fast cements for us this idea of, of a covenant. You know, when it says, uh, when it talks about, you know, he shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, he's talking about allegiances. You know, oftentimes the same word that's leave here is used to speak of, uh, of Israel's rejection of Yahweh's covenant and hold fast is this verb that speaks of their maintaining the covenant. And so to leave and to cling and to hold fast says that I'm leaving one loyalty for another loyalty. This isn't an idle makeshift arrangement. It is a covenant promise that's happening that can't be broken. Right? This isn't two people moving in together with nothing binding them. This is a, a covenant promise that can't be broken. A covenant promise is being made. A marriage is happening. And a system is being set up right where sons and daughters will be married. And they too will have sons and daughters that will get married. And this is to kind of be fruitful, multiply in action. And this happens and can only happen uh, this kind of companionship and intimacy can only happen in the context of a covenant promise that says, I will never leave you. It's this covenant promise that makes this level of intimacy possible. You know, uh, in speaking of marriage, G.K. Chesterton says this. He says, the things that makes marriage romantic is that it's irrevocable. Right? You don't know what the future holds. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. And what makes marriage romantic is 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 that very fact that I can say today that I will be with you forever no matter what forever is. Right? Anyone can have false intimacy with someone right? leaving the back door open for escape at any moment. In fact, if the world's view of intimacy excels in this. But marriage says, I'm with you no matter what. It says, I will never leave you. You know, this is actually what Paul gets at in the New Testament. He writes about marriage in Ephesians 5. He talks about wives, submit to your husbands. Husband, love your wives He's saying, wives, listen, defer to your husbands. Follow their lead. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved you, gentle and kind. This can only happen in the the context of this covenant promise that says, I will never leave you. As you consider these truths, some might say, well, what if if my husband isn't a very good husband? What if if he's not respectable? What if he's detestable? Or husbands, you you might say, well, how can I love my wife if she's unlovely? Maybe she's a pain. Well, let me ask you this question. When did God first love you? Scripture tells us while we were his enemies, while you were still in sin. God gave his life for the ungodly and loved you while you were ugly and his love is the thing that actually made you beautiful. His, His love for you made you lovely. And what this means for us in marriage is that we are the ones that love first. We respect first. And as we do this, our, our spouses become respectable and lovely. Right? Adam's love for Eve is what made her beautiful in his eyes. And this is, this is a challenge for us because there's a part of us that says, okay, what if I follow my husband's leadership 
and he just walks all over me? Or what if, what if I, I love my wife and she takes advantage of me? Why should I, why should I risk this happening? Well, again, you look to the gospel. Did Jesus know that we would still obey him after he laid down his life for you? Did he know that, that we would sometimes take advantage of the grace that he has offered to us? Yeah, he did. He knew all that. So why did he continue to, why did he lay down his life still? Because he loves you. Because he said you were worth the risk. And what this teaches us about marriage is that your husband and your wife are worth the risk. Because it isn't our will that makes a covenant promise stick. You don't have to be, read far into scripture, see how bad humans are at keeping covenants. We're not very good at it. We constantly break them. But it is Christ's working that causes it to stick because God is the great covenant keeper who keeps his promises to us. Your love won't be the thing that keeps your marriage together. Even your love is flawed for each other. But it is Christ, the great covenant keeper, who holds us together. And the, the covenant promise that is within marriage actually points not to the strength of our words and our vows, but to the strength of Christ's words and his vow to keep us. And what this tells us and what this points to is that marriage is not just simply about men and women, but it is a picture that points to something far greater. It's a signpost that points to the city ahead. It's a picture of Christ and his church, his people. And one, one amazing thing about the Bible is that you know, it was written over a 1,500-year period of time, and, and, and yet the beginning and the end of the Bible have a lot in common. I mean, at the beginning, you have this, this river uh, in, in, in Eden. You have this tree of life. And in the end of in Revelation, what do you find? We find a tree. We find a river. In the beginning, there's a serpent who tries to deceive Adam's bride. And in the end, there's a serpent who tries to deceive the second Adam's bride, the, the church, right? Jesus, Jesus' bride, the church. In the beginning, what do you see here? You see a marriage. And in the end, you have one between the church and Christ himself. And what this image shows us is that marriage is good, but it's not ultimate. It's pointing to something greater. It's pointing to us and Christ and Christ's love for his people. This is especially good for you to hear if you're not married, but deeply desired to be. We can and should rightly pray for these things and lament that this godly desire has not happened because the world is not how it was supposed to be. You're supposed to have a spouse, but the picture of marriage here shows that although good and, the, and although the means of being fruitful, multiplying, human marriage is not ultimate. Right? Even the best marriage on the planet is still pointing to a deeper union between God and his people. Right? Your spouse can't cleanse you from your sin. Your, your spouse cannot satisfy your existence, even the best marriage in the world, needs something more. And so this union is pointing to the great union between Christ and his people, the church, where Christ is united to us. He's, he's our great protector. He's our provider. Jesus is the great shame eater who restores your beauty, who takes your shame on himself on the cross and makes you lovely. And Jesus has bound himself to us. And his promise is sure that even though we struggle with our promises, Jesus is the great covenant keeper. He is bound himself to us, praying for us. He feeds us. He listens to us like a good husband. <coughs> and he helps us like a good wife. He is all things to his bride. And we get a taste of this vision, Christ and his people, and marriage. And this is what marriage is supposed to point us towards. It's supposed to point us towards this greater vision of how God views his people. Because of this profound truth, even though stuck in 
miserable marriages can find completeness as they look to Jesus to complete them. Even those who long to be married but who are not yet can find wholeness as they commit to Christ and his church because with Christ you are never alone but you found the one that can satisfy your soul. So marriage is meant to make us look to this one true bride in Christ. And this is what it does. And even for those who are not married, this is what the church does for you. And it's, it's a call to commit yourself to the, to the church and, and, and to work and to pray for a, a spouse. And in these walls, you will learn to be a husband and a, and a wife. And, and in a way, in these walls, you are a husband and a wife as God gives you this community to dwell with. And so in this, we're called both to, to honor the promises that we've made, to grow in our marriages, to learn these profound truths, to work out the gospel in our, in our lives. And as we do that, this is a, one of the primary means of discipleship for us, to learn to love and respect, to live the gospel in our marriage, and also let our fidelity to Christ and his church, uh, whether single or married, be a light in the darkness, right? In, in a world that, that feeds on changing allegiances, may we hold fast to our bride in faithfulness, and walk as lights in the darkness. And may our marriages be a signpost in the world that points to the gospel of Christ. Pray with me. God, we give you thanks for your word, for your love and your care for your people. You love us and you care for us so much that you marry us, that you long to, to marry us, to be united to us in that great union that can never be broken. Lord, continue to prepare us for that great day ahead when we will be made beautiful by your son and his righteousness. Sustain us to that day. May our lives reflect your